Well, she started writing at the age of 17 and published her first novel when she was 20. And now, with 25 books under her belt, she's grown to be one of the most highly recognized thriller writers of today. She has the most beautiful ice blue eyes that will stop you dead in your tracks. But man, when you sit down and read one of her books, this brunette bombshell will take you for the ride of your life. <laughs> this is Greg Grasso with my co-host Ann Mercaldo today on the Marshall Public Library Radio Hour. So if you haven't figured it out yes, yet, <laughs> we are talking with one of the top thriller writers of today, Lisa Gardner. Lisa, how the heck are you? Thank you. I've never been referred to as a bombshell. I love your radio show already. So far, this is my favorite interview today. Well, I got you. Have you? You are our number. Well, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I will. But yes, I think you're absolutely gorgeous. You got beautiful eyes, and uh, what a lucky man your husband is. <laughs> well, sadly, he will tell you he got to know me by looking at my research books, which includes the 101 ways of poisoning people and how to run away and not be found. So he might question that statement slightly. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Oh, funny. <laughs> well, listen, I'm going to lead off. Um, on your website, you, you reference a question that's always asked of you. How does such a nice girl write such dark books? Well, I'm not going to ask you that. <laughs> okay. okay. I got another, um, another one for you. Um, Ann and I have um, uh, talked to a lot of writers, thriller writers, uh, mystery writers. Um, you, I, I talked to Jeffrey Deaver a few weeks ago, and he – is one of the few authors that I've talked to that really just lets this stuff come into his head. Okay, He develops a character, and then he goes into outlines and things like that. So what's your work in progress like? I definitely am what some authors refer to as an out-of-a-mist out of the mist novelist. Hmm. When I first started out writing thrillers, I really did have a need to outline, outline, outline. And I felt my first few drafts then became very, what we call linear. You could see what was going to happen next because I could see what was going to happen next. Hmm. When I went to write Catch Me, which is a very character-driven novel, it all has to do with Charlene Grant. Here is the last woman standing from a group of friends. Each one has been murdered one by one, year after year. She is literally counting down the last four days until her own death. That's what I started with. This is this person. And then the questions are, well, where is she going to go from here? And what I loved about writing Catch Me is I didn't know the answer to that. I figured she would be a fighter because that's a lot more fun to read about. I think at the end of the day, as suspense novelists and suspense readers, we want to sit down and, you know, we want someone who's going to fight the good fight. So I'm like, well, if she's a normal everyday person thinking she's going to meet a murderer in four days, you know, I think she should probably learn how to shoot a gun. I think she'd probably take up self-defense, try to get herself in shape, but kind of, you know, the future murder's victim of, you know, rocky action sequences, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. But there were a lot of things in the novel that surprised me, which is then when you start to peel it, peel away the layers, there's a different aspect that also comes up if you believe in four days you're going to die, which also means... Well, there's no consequences after that day, right? You yeah. Almost. If you have only four days left to live, does that also give you a little bit of permission to color outside the lines? Because what's the worst that's going to happen? You'll already be dead. <laughs> and some of those scenes really surprised me, and I thought were really a lot of fun and went into making a character in a novel much more complicated, actually, than I had originally envisioned. Hmm. Hmm. Crazy. Anne, um, 
what do we want to say about that? <laughs> well, um, I've, I've read your books for years, Lisa, and, and one of the things that intrigues me most when I was looking at your website, for those in our audience, it's lisagardner.com. Um, you've developed over the years a, a formula for how you write. In other words, um, over that 12-month period, the first three months you do your research, the following six months you write the story, and then the final three months, you wrap it up and edit it, getting it ready for your publisher. Well, I, I mean, I've been a novelist for 20 years, mm-hmm. so I do have a, a rhythm for how I would go about doing a book, mm-hmm. <laughs> if that's well, the question. Your your research is what I'm, I'm um, leading into. Tell us a little bit about how you go about contacting a, a police department or the FBI or... Uh, Forest Service uh, yes. to get the background material on your story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Research is my favorite part of the writing process. Um, you know, my, my brief day job before I became a full-time novelist was I was a research analyst for a Boston consulting firm. Mm. And one of the things we learned to do as research analysts was cold call to get industry data. I was working on a suspense novel then. I hadn't published it. I was not making enough money to write full-time. And it occurred to me one day, if we could cold call companies to get sales data, industry info, um, why couldn't you cold call law enforcement? And that's what I started to do, because that's one of the things that was holding me back. On the one hand, I read thrillers. I loved thrillers. I identified with thrillers. On the other hand, at that point, I'm a 21-year-old girl. I'm writing romantic suspense. I feel like I don't have the credibility to write a true thriller novel. So many of the you know, greats in the industry, if you talk to them, you know, they were lawyers. They were crime beat reporters. They were medical examiners. I mean, they did something first. Uh, so one day, I came up with the idea for The Perfect Husband, where a serial killer escapes from prison, but I don't know how maximum security prison works. I frankly don't know how serial killers work. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to cold call prison. Hmm. So I cold called the Walpole Maximum Walpole. Security Prison in Massachusetts. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I said, I'm a local author, and um, I would like to um, set a scene where someone breaks out of your prison. Could I please talk to someone in charge? <laughs> and for the record, that is not the call to make. <laughs> <laughs> the helicopter was over your house in 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, yep, they pretty much hung up on me. <laughs> I have learned the magic words are... <laughs> I am writing a novel where the hero of the novel, who saves the day, has the girl, and gets sex, is going to be, say, a detective, a sheriff, an FBI agent. (laughs) (laughs) So the flip side to my learning experience from The Perfect Husband is I went to write The Other Daughter using the Boston FBI. Hmm. So I called the local Boston FBI field office and said, I'm going to do a book on health care fraud. The hero of the novel will be an FBI agent, and I was wondering if I could interview some of your agents to get the procedure right, because I really just don't want to think that you want to talk to them about real crimes, but procedure is fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I get this call back. I can come in. I come in. The entire healthcare fraud team has been assembled, and the supervisory agent in, ta- in charge is looking at me. He's like, you wanted to talk to healthcare fraud. Not the FBI profilers, not the behavioral science unit. Mm. You wanted healthcare fraud. Mm. I'm like, yes, I'm doing a healthcare fraud book. He's like, these are our terms. We are the heroes. 
we get the bad guy, right. we get the girl at the end of the novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I interviewed with them for weeks. So, I mean, law enforcement agencies want to know that you're looking for positive light. I mean, it's public relations for them. Oh, absolutely. And they really want to know that you're going to steer really clear of real cases where they do have, you know, legal liability. They do mm-hmm. need to be very careful. So once they understand your fiction, anyone who's a taxpayer can call any local law enforcement branch. Hmm and come in and speak to someone. And most of the time, frankly, they're very amused. They think us novelists are kind of just funny and quirky and different. (laughs) (laughs) So I encourage writers, go ahead, make the call. You'll be okay. (laughs) Well, okay. Um, All right. The research and the outline, you know, the the front, beginning, and middle, back is is one thing. But what – what I don't understand, because I can't do this. I mean, I I can think of an idea. I can outline it. But – Dialogue. I mean, dialogue between characters is has got to be the hardest damn thing to do. I mean, you obviously don't speak that way. I mean, you 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 know, you're not a bad guy. You don't know how the language. I mean, how do you develop the dialogue? No, dialogue is one of my favorite parts, and I I do laugh. I mean, so many authors I do feel are control freaks. I mean, one of the best parts about doing dialogue, particularly fast-paced dialogue Mm. in suspense novels such as Catch Me, is you get to control both sides of the conversation, and you can rewrite it until you get it right. (laughs) Unlike in real life, when someone says something, and like 10 minutes later, you're like, oh, 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 I got the witty comeback. Oh, 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 oh." (laughs) But do you you separate yourself in character, or do you just let it flow? I mean, how do you talk to another person? I see my novels almost as a movie in my head. Oh, far out. And so I really am almost transcribing what's happening. Yeah, like Deaver does the same thing. I talk to him, and he he builds these pictures. I mean, these pictures just come into his brain, right? Yeah, Uh, I mean, I do feel like I'm transcribing just like this movie in my mind. Yeah, very cool. And you're right. In my real life, I'm not... I mean, I would. Well, one, I don't speak like a hard-boiled detective because I'm not one. But <laughs> I would think not. Wow. But the books come that way for me. So dialogue for me is the easy part. And, hmm. I mean, I like books with a lot of dialogue, and I do think that's a really fun way of writing. Yeah. And, and, it's, the, and it's the one way, well, the only way that I can get the character in my head, you know, yeah. is, the, is the language. Everyone um, has a voice, and you have to find that character's voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy. Well, on your website again, Lisa, you provide a lot of information for your readers, particularly those who may be aspiring writers. Your advice is extremely down-to-earth and helpful and even funny. Oh. One of the, the um, um, topics that you talk about is your villain and how yeah. important a good villain is. Could you um, elaborate on that a little bit? I think villains are everything in a thriller novel. In a mystery where it's a whodunit, the villain's off, the villain's off stage. But I write thrillers, you know, mm-hmm. cat and mouse. And the best advice I was given from my first editor when I was writing at that time, The Perfect Husband, was it always needs to be kind of a duel of equals. Hmm. You need your law enforcement, you know, hero, heroine, protagonist to always be doing the smart, logical thing. Thrillers where the characters miss something obvious just aren't fun. But they don't catch the villain because he's already one step ahead in doing the next smartest, most diabolical thing. And it's that battle of wit that makes it so much fun for the reader. You have worthy opponents. Now, I'm not actually terribly diabolical myself. Um, I don't, 
I would like the record to show I have a lot of experience with crime. <laughs> but one of the best ways to develop a villain is through using your law enforcement interview. Mm. You don't, if you can get the time of an FBI agent or detective or medical examiner to sit down and give you an hour out of their day, you don't want to just talk to them about procedure. You mm -hmm. want to let them know the crime you're working on and let them play villain. There's no cop out there that has not spent a great deal of time thinking about the perfect crime. Mm -hmm. I did a book where I was kidnapping a woman and I went to the you know, the Oregon State Police, because that's where I was setting the book, and the detective in charge kept solving my book, page three. <laughs> and that's not much of a thriller. No. So finally, I was like, how would you kidnap a woman? And by the time he was done, I was very impressed. I'm like, fine, you can now kidnap a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when developing your villain, use your law enforcement resources and your research for that as well, and you can really get that whole cat and mouse thing going. This mm. is what we would do, but this is what savvy people have done before us. Now we would try this, then they would do that. And that's when you start getting a really great plot kind of stringing out in front of you. Yeah, these law enforcement agents have to have they they have to be able to put themselves in the mind of the criminal. Now they're good Absolutely. they're good guys, uh, they're doing the right thing, but there's got to be a part of them where they're you know there's that that tucked down that tucked away you know pers uh, alter personality. Right? Like, I, I've talked to cops before. It's like, how'd you catch him? Well, I had to put myself in his, you know, and if I were in this, I would do this and this and this. They go through this process, right? I mean, that, I mean, they, they've got to think like the bad guy. And, and I it's. Use this, a quote a lot from yeah. the Detective Dee Dee Warren novel, yeah. such as Catch Me, where crime is really a matter of logistics. You know, a criminal breaks it down into steps and executes one step at a time. A good police officer, when you talk to detectives, that's what they're doing in their head. If this is what happened, well, what are the steps that went into it, into first preparing for the crime, executing the crime, and then here, this is what they tell you, this is where criminals get caught, covering up the crime. Hmm. So there's three major stages, and if each stage you start breaking down into steps, that's where a good detective can start getting traction. And, you know, find places where the criminal screwed up. And Detective Dee Dee Warren, particularly Can Catch Me, in other novels, that's definitely her approach. It's all a matter of logistics. If you think through the steps, you can find, you can get your guy. I love it. I love it. Uh, Lisa, you've written some standalones in addition to your um, Dee Dee Warren series and your FBI profiler series. Over time, as you've written these individual books, do you come to see the main characters as real people? You know, I think if you're a novelist, the characters become like your children. Mm -hmm. One of the fun parts of writing Catch Me wasn't just bringing back Detective Dee Dee Warren, who's now you know, six novels later working on a personal challenge of actually at 40, 40 years of age being a mom, so that was fun. But I had an opportunity in Catch Me because I had a string of previous murders I could set them in different jurisdictions and use that to logically bring in characters from my previous novels, such as my former FBI profiler, Pierce Quincy, who does mm -hmm. consulting work now for police departments, um, Kimberly Quincy, his daughter, who's an FBI agent in Atlanta, where I set one of the murders, Sergeant Roan Griffin from the Survivors Club, a Rhode Island State police officer, where I set one of the murders, 
And it was so much fun for me to do, and I hope it's fun for readers, because it is like a little family reunion. Mm -hmm. These characters, you know, they spend, you know, nine months living in your head. (laughs) You miss them when it's gone. I hope when people read the book, when I read a book I love, it's often, it's the characters I miss, you know, when you hit that last page. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just fun to get to spend time with them again. Well, how do you, how do you get rid of some of this stuff? I mean, uh, your books say goodbye, okay? Yes. Um, freak me out. That's a hard book. I don't recommend that book for just everyone. Well, of course not. <laughs> and and my point is, you, yeah. you, you had to put yourself in that. You had yeah. to consume that body. And then you had to get rid of it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you, you've got to – you must have tucked it away somewhere or somehow. I mean, had, had, you know, that, that was a horrible book. I mean, a horrible – it was a great book. It was a great book, a horrible crime. And uh, every, you know, every parent's nightmare. So yeah, I'm – the most complicated villain, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I suspect mm-hmm. that that maybe stuck with you for a while. I don't know. Well, I think part of the writing process is to write to closure. Mm. Say Goodbye was the book that surprised me the most. Mm. I actually don't consider myself that graphic and that violent of a writer. Say Goodbye is clearly the exception to that rule. Mm -hmm. But it was not something I planned. Mm. But at a certain point, I needed you to hate that villain Mm -hmm. so badly. I needed you to feel how much you hated him. But you're writing to closure because Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day when we're reading, we want the catharsis at the end. We want a sense of resolution. That's what suspense novels give us that we can't find, you know, watching the news at night. You get these terrible, sensational cases, and you never do know why they happened. You never do get a sense of of closure from them. So I think during the writing process, you know, I can compartmentalize it because I know I'm going somewhere with it, and if I do it right, we should get closure. So if the book ends right, then you're able to put it away again. This thing happened but the character justice was served there's resolution for all but say goodbye haunted me a little and the neighbor not everyone figures this out Mm. but the neighbor is actually a sequel to say goodbye Mm. and that there was a boy in say goodbye i just couldn't quite let go Mm. and i just needed to tell more of his story and he became a man in the neighbor and then i could walk away again Mm. and that one that won an international thrill award right yes and mm-hmm. it, you know it's it's a weird sort of thriller. It's like you got to read the the sequel, and you have to read the whole thing. And you're like, wait a minute, I know who Jason Jones is. And I think for the readers, it's kind of a neat moment. Of, oh, he grew up so well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that makes you feel good. And then you're okay again. <laughs> well, when you when you won that international thriller award for the best hardcover novel of the year, you were up against some stiff competition. Um, Harlan Coben, Joseph yeah. Finder, T.J. Je- uh, Jefferson Parker. Winning that award, was that just about the best day in your life? That is definitely a highlight of my career right there. <laughs> it was an amazing moment. I didn't expect it. I figured actually Harlan had it, and I love Harlan and his books. In fact, I'd read all the books that were finalists, and, and I mean, they were great. And um, Definitely. And it's, it's like being recognized by your peers. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the international thriller writers. It's not just that I write thrillers. I'm still a huge reader of them. And to stand, I don't know, up on a podium in front of the people who's, I mean, these are my idols. I mean, it was, that is definitely one of the highlights of my career. And I gave it my little, they give you this, uh, the trophies, this 
it's gorgeous. It's this uh, like molten glass book mm. on a stand. Oh, far mm. out! Beautiful. Hmm. I possibly you know gaze at it lovingly most days. <laughs> <laughs> most days. Not that I have a problem or anything. <laughs> well. <laughs> Speaking about most days, um, you obviously have a, a good marriage. Um, uh, how, you know, something personal, if you don't mind. How'd you meet your husband? And what do you guys do for fun? I mean, for crying out loud, writing the type of stuff you write, you must be exhausted. <laughs> so, how do you relax? <laughs> oh, I have a great husband. Can I say that? Because I'm in this shishi hotel and he's home with our child. <laughs> Um, we actually have a great story. We met through the Romance Writers of America. When? Oh, oh really? An organization that lived up to its billing. <laughs> um, no way. I started my career writing romantic suspense. As Elisa Scott. Thir- yep, that yep, was my first yep. 13 novels. And a mutual friend um, who was also a romance writer, he is the best friend of her husband. So she set us up. Oh. And, uh, he is crazy. He acknowledges that. He races cars. He black diamond skis. He's an absolute adrenaline junkie. I joke that I write adrenaline. He actually lives it. Um, and our new hobby that we took up actually because of Catch Me. It was research I needed to do for Catch Me. The entire family, including my daughter, who's as crazy as he is, we now do family boxing. What? Uh, boxing? Yeah, you know, a family who, you know, <laughs> gets in a ring and pummels each other with gloves on is bound <laughs> to be a strong family. That is so that is so cool. I was um who did I talk to the other day? Oh, for crying out loud. Who did I interview the other day? Anyway, um oh, it was um it was Vince Flynn. Oh, and yeah. and Vince Vince is, I don't know, maybe 50. He's a little younger than I am, but um I was talking to him about uh, growing up in parochial school and my father being an architect and we had eight kids, uh, six boys and two girls. And my father, my father at a young age when we would fight, you know, boys fight, he, he, uh, he, he bought us a pair of – he bought us boxing gloves. He'd throw the gloves on us and he'd say, get your rear ends outside and go, do, go, go duke it out and then come back in for dinner. And – and Vince grew up the same way. You know, he, he grew up with boys and, you know, uh, hard-headed uh, um, uh, Irish uh, uh, um, heritage. And, and so now you are taking up – this is freaking me out. This is so cool. This is so you know, cool. You know, I grew up with three brothers, but we were raised not to fight. So one of the things I've struggled with, and I use it a bit and Catch Me, uh-huh. is, I mean, I'm a middle-aged woman. I've spent my entire life being told, you know, hands are for hugging, use your words. <laughs> Forget <laughs> about it. Modern parenting, my poor child, oh, no. she blinks her eyes, use your words, you know. And then so we show up, and they're like, you know, we got this great big burly boxing coach, a three-time world champion kickboxer. He's like, hit me. And I'm like, um... Can't we talk about it first? <laughs> How do you really feel? <laughs> and it was interesting for me to realize mm-hmm. I really had to unlearn. I mean, yeah. he asked my daughter to hit her, hit him, and she just haul off the deck of the guy. <laughs> he now refers to her as the hellion. She has no problems. But for me, it's like I had to unlearn the restraint and realize you really can hit someone, and you really can be hit. Mm-hmm. And I actually... As, sadistic as it sounds, mm-hmm. I almost like that part the most. 
mean, yeah. I take it's a pretty good blow, <laughs> not that I recommend it because I would like to use my brain later in my life, um, to realize you can be hit and be okay. You, you don't get hurt when you hit. I well, mean, yeah, I mean most of the time you don't. You, well, you I mean, know that. Things, but it yeah. passes quickly, and that's why you hit them back. Yeah, you, t- <laughs> you, yeah, you get you get ticked off, and it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow, very and, cool. I mean, that was very interesting because when I first got into the ring, I really wasn't fighting. I was mm-hmm. really trying to not get hit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, now my husband laughs. You get my daughter and I. We get our gloves on, and we're in there, and we're like, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> so <laughs> I love it. You're, so you're doing kickboxing, not not. Well, we're, or, we're starting still with boxing. Wow. When we've mastered more of the um, strategy and yeah. the, you know, if, if you're a girl, it takes a little bit more to learn how to throw a proper punch. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Then we'll start incorporating more of the foot. I mean, his technique is you learn boxing first, then yeah. you add the kicking to it. Well, and, and then when you get to be my age where I can't kick high anymore, I took up Wing Chun, which is oh. close quarter combat style. And it's all within, you know, 18 inches or so. And, and it, oh, yeah, but, but it's it, no roundhouses, no pulling, you know, cocking your arm back because yep. the minute you pull your arm back, I'm in front of you. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, you will learn. If you, if you get into this, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll not only uh, uh, gain self-confidence, but uh, every um, – I, I, I play sometimes with my wife, and, and women are much faster than men. Um, and you will learn that, okay? Yeah, Women. We've really all gotten into it as a family. That's it's, it's cool. A great sport, and I, as a parent, and it feels kind of again in this politically correct day and age parenting, I have loved what it's done for my daughter's confidence. I feel like it is, you know, of all things, you know, going and hitting each other in the ring. It's been really good for her. Yeah, it, it <laughs> actually pulls the family together. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of discipline when you learn any sport. Yes, there the is. First one was if you ever do this outside of the ring, you're going to lose your boxing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, I, I think Anne uh, has got one more question. F- one more question for you, and then we're going to wrap it up, if you don't mind. Okay. Okay. You've been writing now for about twenty years. Is that about right, Lisa? Yes, that's true. And you obviously have a passion for writing. Do you have another passion that you might like to do in the next twenty years? Say. You know, I'm a huge outdoors person. Mm-hmm. I live in the mountains of New Hampshire, and there's nothing that makes me happier than just being mm-hmm. outside, mm-hmm. whether that's cross-country skiing in the winter or hiking in the summer. Um, and, you know, that's where my book ideas come from. You know, mm-hmm. people laugh. It's like, you know, other people go out into the mountains, and they see the grandeur of nature. I'm out there, and I'm like, ooh, there's this woman, Charlene Grant, <laughs> and all her friends have been murdered, and it's four days, and it's her last moments until she dies. But... <laughs> As long as I am outside and moving, and I love the mountains, there's just something about that that really speaks to me. Um, you know, I'm a happy camper. And I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up on um, Bromley and Stratton and Stowe. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, a long time ago, uh, Head 360, metal skis, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My daughter's campaigning for those now. now you, <laughs> you, think, you think New England mountains are beautiful. Um, on, on the last note here, um, if you have ever been out our way, Sun Valley area, Idaho area, have been i grew up in oregon okay so, yeah, so you yeah. you get it's beautiful out it's here beautiful. too beautiful yeah it's beautiful so i like where you live quite a bit yep it's yeah. lovely cool well um we got to wrap it up unfortunately i um i want to s- uh, send out a, a special thanks to npr and uh, kisu sta- staff manager jamin anderson um 
uh, on behalf of the Marshall Public Library, this is Greg Grasso and 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 Anne Mercaldo Anne Mercaldo thanking Lisa Gardner, uh, one of the most acclaimed thriller authors uh, today. And uh, Lisa, I know we can find your books pretty much everywhere in the, in the world, right? Uh, on the web, books. I mean, you're all over the place. Anywhere books are sold. Thank uh, you. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you both for a, for a, a great, lovely afternoon. Well, I hope it's a little bit different than normal uh, interviews. You know, I, uh, I I hope you had fun. Oh, I did. This was this was a lot of fun. So thank you. you thank know, you, Lisa. It was a big treat, Lisa. Thank you very much. Okay, well, you guys have a great week. Thank you. Okay. okay. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.